0: Proverbs 16:31 says gray hair is a crown of glory it is gained in a righteous life. Now the point of that proverb is to suggest that with age comes wisdom. That should be the case. And the book of Proverbs reiterates this point in various ways from encouraging children to listen to their parents, to exhorting us as adults to find wisdom among the aged. Now, personally, I've found this proverb to be true in various situations in my life. As a child, I often went to my parents with questions, knowing that they would have answers. In college and in early stages of marriage, I would go to people who were older than I was or, or at least a little bit further down the road than I was so that I could ask them uh, their recommendations on how to live and how to act. I knew that they had more information if they were godly and that they could take the word of God and apply it into my life. One of the reasons why I love Christian biographies is because I see godly people wrestling with the word of God, and then applying it to their life, and it helps me to understand how to live. This morning, we all together face another crisis. Circumstances are different. This is the third week that we're doing a live stream for our entire church family. This week is different than last week, and last week was different than the first week. And honestly, I pray that this would never have to happen again. But in the midst of this time, we ought to be asking the Lord, how are we to live wisely right now? Stuck in our homes, how do we live wisely? This morning, I want to turn to an ancient voice. To a wise Christian who faced hardship and thus can also share wisdom from the Word, and that wisdom can apply to our lives today. I want to go to a man by the name of Chrysostom. He was a pastor in the 4th and early 5th centuries. And to this day, we have many of his recorded sermons and homilies. He was Christ-loving. He was God-fearing. And there was a situation in his pastorate where there was immense trial. And he, we have the 21 homilies that he preached during the midst of that time. Now, while his circumstances are clearly not identical to ours, the principles that he shares directly apply to us in the midst of COVID concerns. The title for today's sermon is Ancient Words for the Modern Crisis. And I have five points to this sermon. Each point is an encouragement in how to live in this day. Now, I have a confession. The first point of this sermon— is not something, as far as I know, that Chrysostom shared in his homilies. This is something that I put in. But the other four are encouragements from him. And so what I'm going to be doing is I'll read quotes from him, show the scriptures either that he used or the scriptures that support that point. And my hope today is that this sermon is straightforward and clear Here is a wise man who had a righteous life, and may we as Christians, 1,500 years later, listen intently. Now, please know, though, that I don't expect that you'll walk away applying every single point. Maybe you'll walk away with just one point. Who knows, though? Maybe you'll walk away applying all five points. All in all, though, I pray that we find comfort and strength moving forward day by day for Christ's glory in the midst of this time period. So with that in mind, I'm actually going to pray for us again. Father, again, we come to you and we come to you recognizing our need. I pray for the Ventura Baptist Church family. I pray for each person who is listening and each person maybe who cannot listen. I pray, I ask, Father, that you would encourage the hearts of your children and that Ventura would grow in godliness and grace even this morning. And Father, not only for ourselves, but for for the churches around the globe, for our missionaries, for we even think of the McPhail Fossies and the need they have for finances to get back into the mission field. And I pray that they would be encouraged and strengthened. Lord, your providence clearly is what we would consider a strange providence for missionaries who are on furlough, for missionaries who are trying to get to the mission field and wanting to raise support. Father, for some reason, you've halted so many things. But we know ultimately for your children, you're working all things together for our Christ-likeness. So yes, we pray for our church. We pray for the church around the globe. And Father, what that includes even, we pray for the churches in this area. For the pastors who are preaching in live stream, but also just for the, the Christians. Lord, that this isolation would not lead to despair, but but that it would lead your children to pursue you in the word and prayer and in other means of fellowship. To you be the glory, God. And I pray, I pray this morning that we would gain wisdom, gain wisdom in, in hearing from your word. As it is applied by an ancient saint, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. As I said already, there's five points. These five points can be divided into two sections: loving God and loving others. First three points focus on loving God; the last two focus on loving others. What we're going to see is that in the midst of crises. And what you can see on the slide, if it's there, in the midst of crises, we are to rejoice reasonably, pray purposefully, live gratefully, love wisely, and give liberally. Hmm. Now, before I get into the points, let me give a brief backdrop into the situation for Chrysostom's many sermons. In the late fourth century, Emperor Theodosius I laid down some heavy taxes, and there were certain youth. In that city, in Antioch, and they were angered, enraged by the taxation. So, what they did is they mobbed their way through the city to two statues that were in the city of Antioch. (laughs) One statue was that of Theodosius, the other statue was that of Theodosius's late wife. They pulled down the statues, toppled them, and dragged them through the streets in protest. Now Chrysostom, he actually refers to these men as blasphemers and strangers, men who act with no deliberate plan but with every sort of audacity and lawlessness. Yet the response of Theodosius was over the top. Theodosius was so angered by this mob that he vowed to sack the entire city. As a result, the people in the city We're essentially waiting for its destruction. Chrysostom writes, Now the very souls of the inhabitants totter. Now the very foundations of every heart quiver. And we all see death daily before our eyes. Now, obviously, we here in Holland, Michigan, are not waiting for an emperor to destroy us. But there seems to be, in some ways, a silent destroyer. Many people have feared that something bad may happen to them. Others of you know people who have contracted COVID. Maybe you know people who live in New York City like I do, and the difficulties are even greater there. Death toll is on the rise. But as God's children, how are we to live? While Chrysostom's circumstances were different, the word never changes. The principles he brings out applies beautifully to our circumstances as well. We should pray purposefully, live gratefully, love wisely, give liberally. These are some of Chrysostom's points. But before we get into his points, I want to share one point that comes from me. And don't listen to it because I'm gray-haired, because I'm not gray-haired. Listen to this first point because it comes from the word of God. In the midst of crises, in the midst of all of life, but especially in the midst of crises, we are to rejoice reasonably. Rejoice reasonably. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When trials of various kinds come into your life, here's what James says we are to do. We are to count it all joy. Now I imagine everyone here listening to me is experiencing various kinds of trials right now. Some of you are without work right now. None of us are able to gather together as a church family. You might have other sicknesses in the home. You may be struggling financially, mentally, emotionally. And then you have your own internal temptations. You have various trials. So what does it mean to count it all joy? The word count is an accounting term. You are to tally things up. This means to count it all joy actually involves a process. It doesn't just mean, say, put a smile on your face, but instead you don't ignore the difficulties and the pain. You acknowledge them. You count them up. Then as you evaluate your sorrows, your various trials in life, and you add them, You don't let yourself believe that any of those trials are going to destroy you. You don't let the various trials lead you to despair. Instead, you defy the temptation to despair by choosing joy. Why? Because James says that God is producing greater godliness in you. He says that he's producing steadfastness. He uses the words perfect, complete lacking in nothing. These words put together refer to the idea of wholeness. God's goal for his children is that they would be whole in him. While you're tempted to think that all difficulties and pains are to break you, God's design is that he will work through these trials to To make you whole, therefore, through faith, by depending on the Lord and believing his promises, you choose joy. This is the idea of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 12, when he says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Rejoice in hope? Now, this word for hope in the New Testament is not just wishful thinking. It is actually confident expectation. Expectation. We know our God. We know he is worthy to be praised. And we know that he is worthy to be trusted. How do we know he's worthy to be trusted? Jesus told us that in this world, there would be tribulation. There would be trial. But then he says this, take heart. Don't despair. Take heart. Why? Because Jesus says he has overcome the world. That's why we should take heart. Well, how has he overcome the world? Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension. Jesus faced the greatest of all trials in this life. He being God, the son endured temptation. He endured rejection. He endured the cross death. And on that cross, he endured the greatest type of separation you could experience. He endured on the cross the just, righteous, eternal, holy wrath of God in the place of sinners. And therefore, took the punishment that sinners deserved and conquered over sin. But Jesus didn't only conquer over sin, Jesus conquered over death. He died and then he rose from the dead, therefore conquering death. And now he has ascended up into heaven and he reigns in the throne room of God, calling all people everywhere to turn to him for forgiveness of sins, for reconciliation with God, for eternal hope that there will be a day when there will be no more sin, no more Sorrow, no more viruses. But the Bible tells us now, on, on the basis of the reality that Jesus has overcome, now those who trust him are promised that God commands all circumstances to work for our good. That's Romans 8 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And in the context of Romans 8, the good is Christ-likeness. This is why we rejoice. The word to rejoice shows us that we are to have joy. And James and Paul tell us we are to have joy in the midst of the circumstances because we are becoming like Christ. Now listen, if you don't trust Jesus, that does not excite you at all because you don't care about Christ. But if you love Jesus, then you should rejoice that this is God's plan. He demands every circumstance in his children's life be subservient to his goal of your christ That's why we can rejoice. That's steadfast hope. Therefore, Paul also says in Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Paul emphasizes the need to rejoice. He states it twice to ensure we get the point. But I'm more intrigued with the verse five. Let your reasonableness be known. What does that mean? Well, if what I said and what the Bible says about Jesus living, dying, and rising and ascending is true, then what's the reasonable response for us in the midst of crises? To rejoice. Is the reasonable response to be gripped by fear? Is the reasonable response to live in despair? I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen to us? The worst thing that can happen to us is that we suffer and we die. Yet to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus has taken away the sting of sin and death. Now, I'm not saying that to minimize death because death is still an enemy. Yet Jesus has conquered over it. Therefore, if that's the case with death, then right now, today, we can rejoice. Nothing is going to conquer over Jesus. It's reasonable, Paul says. It's it's really the only reasonable response is to rejoice in God. A Christian who doesn't rejoice has forgotten their God. Now, I want to be careful here. Rejoice doesn't mean that we only always have a smile. Remember, to count our circumstances as joy would involve lament. There's sorrow over things. There's loss. There's pain. And so we count. And I would actually say those who lament well actually will have greater joy. But you know know you're doing lament wrong if it's leading you down into further despair. Lament is intended to lead us in sorrow, but we sorrow at the throne of God. And in sorrowing at the throne of God, we will, in his timing, experience his comfort in his promises. Now, one more final thing before I go into Chrysostom's points. You could say right now, but I don't feel like rejoicing. Then my challenge to you is to fight for joy in God. The Apostle Paul says, rejoice, and again I say, rejoice. Fight for joy in Christ and rejoice. So rejoice reasonably. It's the only reasonable response. Now let's move on to Chrysostom's encouragements. Pray purposefully. That's the next point. Pray purposefully. In the midst of the trials in Antioch, Chrysostom wrote the following encouragement to his people. And I'm going to show this on the screen. Let us not despair for our safety, but let us pray. Let us make invocation. Let us supplicate. Let us go on embassy to the king that is above with many tears. Now notice here, Chrysostom said it was time to lament. But it's not time to despair. That's interesting, isn't it? Let us not despair. We can lament, but not despair because our King Jesus reigns. We can go to him with many tears, and we know that he will wipe away our tears someday. Now, going back to Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul says in verse 6 Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Rejoice and pray. But you notice that I made this point say, pray purposefully. Verse 6 says that we are to let our requests be made known. Whatever it is you feel or are burdened by, tell it to the Lord. Times like these reveal our hearts and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so as we speak in prayer to God, we lay those burdens before him. He sanctifies us. He he grows us. God purifies us and even perfects our prayers. But we got to be careful even with our prayers sometimes. Sometimes we can use prayer as a means to just verbalize more of our worries and, and, and to stay worried. We are to verbalize them, but, but we are to verbalize them to God because he will take them. Prayer is not just a justification of worry, because God loves us. Paul says, the Lord is at hand. Meaning, he is near and he is coming again. So while we rejoice and lament, we don't despair and we fight despair by praying purposefully. We pray our requests and we intermix our prayers. Notice in Philippians 4 6, he says, By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we intermix our prayers, our burdens with gratitude. Thank you, Lord. Knowing his designs are far superior than anything we could imagine, so Ventura pray purposefully. And I have a question for you: Have you been prayerless in the midst of this crisis? God works in difficulties to call us to prayer. Even thinking of Romans twelve twelve again, Paul says: Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Rejoice, persevere, constant praying. Now, some of you might say, I, I really don't know how to grow uh, my, my life of prayer. If that's you, I want to give you an encouragement. Something that has helped me in the past is just taking the Lord's Prayer and using that as the example, as the pattern for my prayers. So, for example, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Oh, Father, it is glorious that I can call you Father. I am your child. You hear me. May your name be reverenced in my heart. May I honor you like I, like I was created to. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, O oh, Lord. I pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Your kingdom is a perfect kingdom. The kingdoms of this world defy you. We look around and we see presidents and rulers and, and, Lord, they're all broken. I pray, Father, that you would come. But until that time, may we as your children live out your will in this world, that we would obey you quickly and swiftly like the angels. And so I pray for so-and-so, and and I pray for this person here, and I pray for this need here, and I ask for, for this person and that person, and I pray for rulers and authorities, and I pray, and I pray. Use the Lord's Prayer as a pattern. We are to rejoice reasonably and to pray purposefully. Now we get into the next point that Chrysostom gives. We are to live gratefully, live gratefully, third point. Chrysostom stated that in times of difficulty, some people will say that these situations are unworthy of the providence of God, meaning that there's no way that God could have willed these things. Now, clearly we don't want to blame God for doing anything immoral. However, Chrysostom states, and I also believe this as well, that the scripture teaches that God ordains whatever comes to pass. This doesn't always make sense to us, but we know that he is good. Therefore, Chrysostom goes on to say the following, and I have this on a slide, and it's a very long point, so uh, follow along on the slides here. Let me, just, let me just ask real quick to make sure. Is, is it showing the slide? Let us then give thanks to God even for these things. That we have reaped so much fruit from the tribulation. That we have received so great an advantage from the trial. If there were no trial, there would be no crown. If there were no wrestlings, there would be no prize. If there were no lists marked out, there would be no honors. If there were no tribulation, there would be no rest. If there were no winter, there would be no summer. If we expect the ear of corn to spring and flourish, there must be much rain, much gathering of the clouds, and much frost, and the time of sowing is also a rainy season. Now, this point is very similar to the point of rejoicing reasonably, but I've separated the two. Rejoice has the idea of rejoicing in God, Rejoicing, having joy in Him, and then gratitude flows from that. To be grateful for His providence. This doesn't mean only being grateful for the things that you like. If you believe that good gifts from God, are a secure bank account and a healthy life or having or only having all the comforts you enjoy, then you will miss out on gratitude. Because as Chrysostom states, God's design in trial is to burn up our sins and to make more illustrious and distinguished our virtue. We can be grateful in the midst of trials because of God's design. This all echoes what the scriptures say. In the midst of times where people can be tempted to panic, we ought to ask ourselves, Lord, what should my response be? Should my response be panicked? Panic? Have you ever asked yourself, have you even asked in the midst of the last couple of weeks, God, what is your will for me? What do you want me to do? You know, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 tells us precisely what God's will is. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 say this Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's God's will? Rejoice, pray, give thanks in all circumstances. By the way, you see how Paul has put rejoicing, praying, giving thanks. These are the first three points of the sermon. This is God's will for you in Christ, meaning because you are unified with Christ on the basis of Jesus Christ, because of who Jesus is, then these three things, rejoice, pray, give thanks, on the basis of the one who lived, died, and reigns. This idea is brought out in 2 Corinthians 2.14 as well, where the apostle Paul writes of the difficulty of gospel ministry, and he says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. While people reject Paul, while people spurn him, Paul says, I know I'm in triumphal procession. And Ventura, so are we. As Jesus suffered and rose from the dead, so we will suffer. But through suffering, through difficulties, God has ordained for us to grow. These seasons are not. Crushing, they're strengthening. So look on your circumstances with eyes of faith. Don't miss what God promises to do in and through you. Without wrestling, there'd be no prize. With no trial, there's no crown. God wills for crowns and prizes for his children. Therefore, live gratefully to God. Now, these first three points highlight loving God. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. All of these practices should be focused on him. If we're not focused on God in the midst of trials, then at best we're just moral people, but we don't want to simply be moral. We want to be godly. So keep these three first in your mind. And on the basis of Jesus, love God in the trials. And on the basis of God and your love for him, love others. You have to have both. Love God and love others. So the fourth point is this, love wisely. The word love is often connected to the word give in the New Testament. Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. Husbands, love as Christ loved and gave himself. For God so loved the world that he gave. Love is outward focused. And in the midst of crises in particular, we can have a hoarding mentality. Can't we? Things get rough. Oh, no, I got to think only about me. And so you go to the grocery store and you walk through the aisles. And what's the empty aisle? The toilet paper aisle. What in the world? Now, for a while, I just thought this was humorous. And I kept kind of chuckling every time I walked by the toilet paper aisle. But after a while, it's not funny anymore because you need toilet paper. People get a hoarding mindset. Mindset only thinking about ourselves and i'm not trying to blame other people i'm saying i do this yet since jesus is my savior and our savior we must look to him as the example he came and gave himself and served people We can say we love, but love is tested by actions. And true Christian love is a love that's going to interact in time with others. And it's going to be a love that is wise. That's why I say love wisely. Wisdom is living in the present right now in light of eternity. That's our concern. Live in the present right now in light of eternity. Now, I'm giving all of this backdrop because Chrysostom's advice is going to seem a little weird. He takes the people of Antioch to 1 Timothy 5.23, and I want you to see this verse here. 1 Timothy 5.23 says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Chrysostom is not going to go off of this and say, okay, we've got major problems, just drink as much as you can. That's not the point that he's making. Instead, what Chrysostom does is he ponders something. He asks why Paul, someone through whom God performed many miracles, Paul had done many miracles by the strength of God. Why would Paul say to Timothy to use common medical advice of the day? Why wouldn't Paul just say, hey, Timothy, I'm going to get on a boat. I'm going to see you and your healing is coming. That'll show the glory of God and love. Instead, he encourages common type of love. Why does he do that? Chrysostom answers in part by saying that God often works through ordinary, the ordinary of weak means, meaning God works through us as human beings. He works through the common means of grace that God has given to this world, and we ought to pick up those means and love other people with those means. Yeah, I mean, I could think that if Paul just showed up to Timothy and he healed Timothy of his many ailments, his frequent ailments, man, that would be to God's glory, wouldn't it? That'd be awesome. But Paul doesn't turn there. And we could think about gathering together as a church family. Let's just gather all together in the building and God's going to keep us healthy and well and we can show the world that our God reigns. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yes, honestly, that would be awesome. But one of the reasons why we aren't meeting is because we're wanting to use common, ordinary means to show love. But there's other ways in which you can love your neighbor that, that you must, that we must still reach out and love those around us through a phone call. Know your neighbors around you. Maybe they're on Facebook and you can message them. See how they're doing. No, people who are elderly and and do grocery shopping for them. These are practical means to show love to people. I don't know what it looks like for you, but we are to love wisely in this circumstance. Let it be known to the world that Christians sacrificed in love for others. We are to rejoice reasonably, pray purposefully, live gratefully, love wisely, and finally, we are to give liberally. Generously is what I mean by that. In the midst of social difficulties like that in Antioch or even like in our day as well, money can be something we cling to. We need our stuff. We want our stuff. Other people can take care of themselves. But Christostom takes his stand as he preaches and he reads from 1 Timothy 6.17, which I'm going to show you right now. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, after reading this passage, Chrysostom goes on to say, and I'm going to have you read this as well with me. He hath given thee money, not that thou mayest shut it up for thy destruction, but that thou mayest pour it forth for thy salvation. For this reason also he has made the possession of riches uncertain and unstable, that by this means he might relax the intensity of your madness concerning it. Notice in that quote, money and stuff is inherently uncertain. We like to think that money will give us certainty, but it can't. And in times like these, when the stock market drops and drops and financial projections are all over the place, we should be pointed to the one who possesses all wealth and his glory will never fade. The reality is that physical wealth is fine. It's fine, but it's not eternal. Wealth is to serve a greater purpose. And God gives us financial trials. I love the verbiage of Chrysostom here. He gives us financial trials to relax the intensity of our insanity of putting trust in money so that we let go of an idol. Don't put your trust in uncertain riches, Paul says. Put your trust in God and rejoice in true spiritual riches that he gives to you because his riches are far superior. This, by the way, is what Paul emphasizes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians. Paul exhorts them to give generously. He talks of a different situation where People in Macedonia were going through a trial, but even though they were going through a trial and even though they were poverty-stricken, Paul says they gave out of their poverty to others. In the midst of this discourse of Paul, he tells the Corinthians, God loves a cheerful giver. This is Paul talking to people when they're, when they're financially strained or threatened to be so. And in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8 and 9, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Paul says, I'm not commanding you here. What I'm doing here is I'm, I'm telling you that if you really do love people, if you really do love them, then you are going to be giving financially. So prove the genuineness of your love. Now, Paul doesn't simply say, do this to prove yourself and show how amazing you are. Instead, he says to do this in verse nine, he goes on, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Don't give financially to others to emphasize you so that people say, wow, you're an amazing person. Instead, give because Jesus is the Savior, that he left heaven's glories and came to this sinful and poverty-stricken world in order to give what we need most. And now we have greater riches than green pieces of paper with president's pictures on them. We have eternal wealth. So give liberally. Give. Because money isn't our God, because people have needs, and because Jesus became poor to meet our needs, and now we have wealth in him. So I want to read to you a few more words of Chrysostom. He writes this, Wherefore, let us not consider riches to be a great good, for the great good is not to possess money, but to possess the fear of God and all manner of piety. Trials are intended to produce in us a greater awe and reverence of God. Trials are meant to work in us all manners of piety, of godliness. Even the giving of our money is a sign in our lives that we say, that's not what I live for. So, Ventura, in the midst of this time, there are many needs in this world that we are seeing more and more of. And there's always been many needs, but this this circumstance. I hope, helps to remind us that there always is. The needs are only going to be seen increasingly in the weeks and months to come. Budgets are going to be tighter for many people. Emotional difficulties are probably going to increase. We're going to have many laments. But may we be like the early church in Acts 2 who helped and cared for one another. May we live out the command of Scripture to love wisely, to give generously to those around us, pointing people to our rich God and our glorious Savior. And as I say all of these things, my genuine prayer, my genuine prayer is that we as Christians respond in a God-glorifying way in this current crisis. I pray we would, by the grace of Christ, love God and love others. I pray we wouldn't simply love others and forget our relationship with God. And I pray we wouldn't love God, so to speak, and forget our need to love others. May we hold them both. And in doing so, I pray we would rejoice reasonably, pray purposefully, live gratefully, love wisely, and give liberally. Let's pray. Oh, Father, hallowed be your name. We come to you, we, in different places, again, we come to you in your presence, united in Christ, asking, Father, That you would give us joyful, grateful, praying hearts. That you would empower us to love wisely, to give generously. So that our sins might be even more subdued. And that godliness might flourish in our lives all to the praise of your name. Oh Lord, fill our souls, our minds, our hearts with the reality that our God reigns and therefore we are secure no matter what. Let us praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Now hear these words. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit